Uh, thanks. I'm glad to be back with you. These are, these are exciting days at Hokessin. Um, they're maybe particularly exciting for me as someone who kind of jumps in and sees things nine months at a time, a year at a time. And maybe you're so close to them, you don't see them, but they're very exciting. Uh, so this morning, we are continuing your series in the story, which really is God's story. It's a story throughout Scripture that creation, fall, rescue, which is today, and restoration. And it's your story. What I want to do, where this is all ending, is um, that you would leave here with a lot of hope. A lot of hope about rescue. Let me first say that um, rescue is a big part of the Bible. In fact, most of the Old Testament is a repeated story. I mean, the characters change, the setting's different. Uh, but the pretty much story goes, God rescues people. There's some peace for a time. They rebel in subtle, strong ways. There's some kind of correction or judgment. They repent and he rescues them again. And it happens again and again and next chapter and next chapter and next book and three times this chapter. And again, most of the scripture is a story of rescue. If we're anything, we are persons who need rescue. Now, rescue, you may not notice, uh, is central to your life. You experience it in small ways and in big ways. For example, uh, rescue this last week happened in our home around, uh, not this item, but an item very similar to it. it this is a, anybody know what this is? This is a mighty bean. Okay, all t- parents of children around five may know what a mighty bean is. It's okay if you don't. Uh, Mighty Bean, I'll let you know, there's a warning on the package. Children three years and younger, there's a choking hazard. Because, you know, it looks like a pill, you get stuck. And, but it's approved for all kids five and over, older, older, it's approved. It's fine. Now, I have three kids, three boys. They're 11, 9, and 7. So they're approved. They're clear. Now, one of my kids, the oldest, was, I don't know, bored or what was he doing? But he was kind of playing with a Mighty Bean and, you know, just throwing it up and catching it and, Throwing it up. And, and then, for whatever reason, he's by himself in this story of rescue so far. I enter later. My wife enters a little before me. He decides, I'm going to start catching this in my mouth. This is what he reports to us. And so he's throwing it up and catching it and throwing it up and catching it. Not this one. Not this one. And he throws it up and catches it. And he catches it deep in his throat, down back by the tonsils. And what he reports is that I tried to cough it out, but it was really hard, so I just swallowed it. <laughs> now, my wife enters the story next, and she enters the story with a white-faced, panicked child wanting to know if they're going to die because they have swallowed a mighty bean. And she's trying to calm him down. I get called for, and I enter this story, and uh, at the end of the story, I'm told two things. One, that don't freak out, and don't get mad. That's always a good way to enter a story. You're always sad to see that. So I, I uh, what happened? Your son. And she had, took one of these, and it's now inside him. What do you mean? It's, I swallowed it. Really? And then she says, do it. 
And so he proceeds to jump up and down. And from his belly comes this sound. It does. Do that again. Boys, come here and see what your brother did. We got it on video. He's still scared. So we call a doctor we know. So you ever heard of this toy called a Mighty Bean? No, never heard of it. Okay, well, it's like this shape, and someone swallows it. What's it I don't know what it's made. I don't know what's inside of it. Because, well, if he's not sick in about 12 hours, they're probably fine. Rescue. He's fine. Jesus and his lower GI. He's, he's rescued. He's fine. There are small stories of rescue like that in your life. There's also some bigger stories of rescue. Uh, I, I have 84, I have a scar, 84 stitches that happened when I was five years old. And I was in a car accident. My mom was a single mom at the time, been working multiple jobs, and was taking me to morning kindergarten as she had done for most of the year. And just one day on that same road over a bridge we traveled hundreds of times, when a car passed, she just slid a little farther over than normal, caught the guardrail, we flip over a bunch of times. It's 1977, no one's wearing a seatbelt. She ends up in the back of the car, I end up behind the driver's seat. And my next memory is I'm looking down at my shoes, and it's my first pair of leather shoes. And I had gotten a leather shoe lecture, which is no blood, no grass. And, of course, there's blood on them. And my next memory is being in an ambulance and trying to peer out the little time. I mean, there's nothing of a window. And trying to see this great catastrophe they're telling me had happened. And my next memory is the next set of people who rescued me. These doctors are telling me to count backwards and they're putting my scalp back together. There's some big stories of rescue in your life as well. Where it wasn't something you just laugh about afterwards, but everyone's scared. And there's days in a hospital and, and not one person or one phone call, but tens of persons with thousands of hours of training and thousands of dollars of medical equipment to rescue someone. What I want you to see today, what we're going to see from this text is that God takes great joy in rescuing sinners. Rescue is central to the Bible, and it's woven through your life because God takes great joy in rescuing persons. So if you have a Bible, please turn to Luke 15. It's, the, it's about the, oh, 15% on the right-hand side. It's probably a Bible at your feet. You can look there as well. So we're talking about the story and we're actually going to he- read a story. So it's true. It's in the Bible. It's what Jesus said. But what he said was to make a point. And, and his point was made around a made-up story. And he actually tells three little stories in the text of Luke 15. I'm going to read these first two for us. And I want you to pay attention to this little sequence. There's a loss. There's a search. There's a recovery. And then there's great joy. All right, so Luke 15 Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. So Jesus is holding court, and there's persons there, and some are tax collectors and sinners, and these are are the people everyone hates. These are the people who they um, were of you, like you, but they're turncoats. They now work for the uh, oppressing Roman force, 
And all they have, all their fine houses and fine food and chariots and herds and animals come from an extra tax they place on you. So if your standard tax, and they have the extra tax, which they get from you because they have these guys with spears and swords, and so everyone hates them. And these are the ones whom Jesus having this meal with and is shepherding, teaching. It's, it's not quite that the Pharisees don't want repentance to happen with these guys. They don't want it to happen the way Jesus is doing it. I mean, his, his deal is, you need to see yourself as you really are. You're in trouble. You're, you're living a life of rebellion. You're living just life your own way. And you need to repent of that, and you need to believe God's promise that he will free people. And oh, by the way, I'm, I'm the promise. I'm the one to come. They don't like that. What they want is, this has to be the rigid system. Now, now, before we get too mean about the Pharisees, the Pharisees, in this day, they would be the most holy person you know, the person you would wish you were like, the person you want your kid to marry. So back to church history time lesson now. Uh, Israel, on all these, uh, they had departed from God, and then he rescues them, and they part. Well, sometimes the rescue didn't happen right away, and they were just... Well, chastised for 70 years in exile. And it happened again. And so the Pharisees emerge after these two exiles. And what they pretty much say is, this is never going to happen again. We're never going to let our people run amok with the pagan idols. No more of this. And they create this, well, rigid, we're going to leash ourselves to the Scriptures. We're going to leash ourselves to Yahweh, to God. And their intentions are great. It became so rigid, it, it became ritual, and it became sacrament and ceremony, and no, no real relationship. And so these guys are upset. So Jesus tells them these stories. He tells them, and they all have the same point. He tells this parable, verse 4, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in an open country and go after the one that's lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice for me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. And just so, I tell you that there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than the ninety-nine persons who need no repentance. Okay, same story repeated, different context. So now probably a mixed crowd, probably some women there. So he says, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and check diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I lost. Just so I tell you, the joy before the angels of God, over one sinner who repents. So Jesus is saying, it brings God great joy to rescue sinners. The lost, the lost sheep, on paper, this is not really that big a deal. If you've got 100 sheep and you lose one, you've had a 1% loss. I mean, most businesses operate on some margin of loss, some margin of uh, this month didn't turn out well, or a product spoiled, or there's some kind of theft. It's just some margin of loss. It's, ex- it's expected. So from a business perspective, there's no reason to chase after this one sheep. There has to be something else driving him, motivating him. Maybe he does care for the sheep. 
The woman, on the other hand, she has the 10 silver coins. They're not worth a great deal. Um, she loses 10% of it. And so it's likely she's not well off, pretty poor. And so when you have little and you lose a lot of little, that, that's a big impact. And so she's in a home. The homes in their day didn't have a lot of windows, if any. And so you got to light something. And you're graveling around in the dirt floor trying to find what you've lost. Both of them begin their search immediately. Both of their searches appear to be desperate. I don't know the last time you've searched for something out of desperation. Uh, when the last time you searched for a person? One of our kids, um, Jack, who we have him today, one time he got lost. And we're pretty desperate to find him. Jenny and I had gone somewhere. We had a sitter. And we returned to the babysitter being in the front yard on the phone with her mom in tears frantic because she couldn't find Jack. And the other two kids kind of roaming around looking for him. Like, okay, well, you know, we gotta do it. we'll play hide-and-go-seek. Okay, well, you know, he's good at this game. We'll find him. And so we go in the normal good spots, you know, by the water heater, you know, in the closet, under some towels, under his brother's bed, you know, in the laundry basket with laundry on him, you know, all, all the normal spots. And then some places, well, I don't know, maybe he can crawl under the deck. We'll try under the deck. And and then it escalates to, okay, Jack Hardcastle, you better come out right now. And then it escalates to threatening. This is not funny anymore. And then it escalates to panic. Calling neighbors. And we checked everywhere, we thought. And somebody just did a recheck of everything. And it turned out what he had done in hide-and-seek is he had wedged himself. He created a little space between his bed and the wall. And kind of slipped down there and put a blanket over himself, and then he fell asleep. <laughs> and so we find him and pull the cover off, and he's sweating, and, and we go, Jack, we're, we found you. And he's, I mean, wakes up to that, and what's happening? We were desperate to find him. There was little that was going to get in the way, if anything. In Jesus' story... These persons are desperate in their search. Little, if anything, going to get in their way. These were not token searches. There's recovery and joy, and the recovery is not a secret. There's no hiding of face or protecting reputation. Everyone rejoices. There's this party at the end. And Jesus makes it clear there's an eternal joy that God makes himself glad by finding lost sinners, by rescue. What makes God happy? Well, one of the things is rescue. Why is rescue so central to the Bible? Why is it woven throughout my life? Because it brings God joy. The next story is a prodigal son. If you've been around the Bible for some time or a church, you probably have encountered the story. The word prodigal means lavish or extreme or excessive. And in the story, what happens is you have a son who's a younger son, and he wants his inheritance now. And he, he wants to go live a prodigal life, a lavish, excessive, extreme life. And so his dad, for whatever reasons, gives him what he asked for, and he runs off, and he does that. And there's some change in circumstances. The text says a famine. And he returns back to his dad. And he's not looking for, he's not looking to be back in the house. He's, look, I'm sorry, I just want to be one of your, 
I'm one of your slaves. I'll, I'll just, I'll work. Whatever your most menial worker is, I'll be one of those guys. If you'll have me. I don't deserve that. And so we have the prodigal son, and also in this text, there's the prodigal father. It could have been called, it could have been called that too, because what the father does is he responds in this lavish, excessive, extreme response of mercy, of forgiveness, of grace. And what the text says, this is chapter 15, verse 20, And he arose and came to his father, this is the son, and while he was long far off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And his son said to him, this little rehearsed speech, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you and no longer worthy to be called your son. And dad probably cuts him off. And the father said to his servant, Bring the best robe, put it on him, put the ring on his hand and the shoes on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this son was dead and now is alive. We lost and found. And they began to celebrate. And the Pharisees didn't like this. They didn't like that what Jesus was saying is someone, look, see yourself for what you are, repent, and then come home. They wanted him to go through rituals of purification. Prove, prove you're really repentant. We're going to watch you for a while. They wanted to give you, oh, you came crawling back lecture. I told you so lecture. Kent Hughes explains it this way. He says, You cannot do anything that will keep God from kissing you and bestowing on you the robe and the ring and the shoes that utter forgiveness is the only kind God knows. Now, in rescue, the qualification is simply that you need to see yourself as a lost son. You need to see yourself as needing rescue. And to come repentant and then just come home. For many of you, that's probably happened. There's probably been a time in your life when you saw yourself separated from God in need of His mercy, saw yourself in view of His judgment and wrath, needing rescue from that, and repented and received it. But that is not the only rescue we need. Well, we need that one. But after that, there's a rescue that happens and continues to happen. And we continue to need. So somehow there's this, I don't know if we teach it or if we don't teach against it, but there's this idea that, okay, at the cross, my sins are dealt with. Jesus' blood pays for my sins. What was wrong is righted. What was dead is made alive. And now I've got to live my life for him. And what's missing is that the same grace you needed to be saved, you need that same grace to live. What we need to be rescued from after salvation is simply living life our own way again. Hearts that have a thorny response to life. The heat of life gets pushed up and our hearts respond with sin after original rescue. Lane and Tripp in their book, How People Change, they give some examples. Let me share these with you. One type of thorny response is the person who, they just pretend everything's okay. They deny, they avoid, they escape. They avoid grief, avoid conflict, and they hide themselves in their work, or they hide themselves in entertainment, or hide themselves in reading, or eating, or exercise. And, and their response to life 
is not one of, God, rescue me. You need to do for me what I can't do for myself. The response is, I'll just run and hide. Another person may respond, <clears throat> not running and hiding, but taking one moment and just blowing it up where they magnify it and, and catastrophize it and expand it to where there's been one painful moment and then no more truth, no more beauty, no more goodness in life. No one has felt what I feel. No one's experienced what I experience. And they slowly begin to blind themselves to the work of God around them. Blind themselves to His mercy. Certainly blind themselves to the promise of rescue. And they don't call out for help. They don't come to the grace Jesus provides. Another person may be kind of prickly and hypersensitive. They've had a difficulty and now they just are looking for trouble. They see suffering where it doesn't even really exist. Something's happened to them and they're never going to let it happen again. And so they're hyper vigilant. They're always on a lookout. They're super critical. Their guard's always up. They take everything personal. And, it, and none of it is. It really is you. After salvation, this person still needs rescue from this kind of thorny response. Another response is the person who something happens and they need some vengeance. They want to return evil for evil. They become more and more captured by self-pity and fear and self-righteousness and anger and envy and vengeance. And they simmer on how they were wronged and, and what they could do in return. Well, they're saved. They're a Christian. They're reborn. They're changed. Hades is not their destination. But they need rescue from this kind of response, this way of living. Still another, in the face of suffering, just kind of sits down and quits on life. They get paralyzed. They give up. They're captured. They, they begin to withdraw from godly influence. And the scriptures get dusty. And they withdraw from friends and from worship itself. And they insulate themselves from rescue. They become exposed to greater temptation. Still another may not even see themselves as a sinner any longer. And whatever are their problems or their shortcomings or their faults, they blame on others. You make me so angry. When really, you can do very little to do anything in me. What you do just reveals what's already in my heart. These thorny responses are not from the Spirit of God. And it's these things that we continue to need rescue. Galatians, Paul, let me share two verses. It's Galatians 3, 3. Paul writes to them, Are you so foolish that having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So when we begin by God, are you rescuing me? Great, now it's up to me. We're doing what Paul accused them of. All right, God, you save me, and I'll take it from here. And the I'll take it from here just doesn't get very far. Galatians 2.20, Paul writes to them saying, I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And now listen to this. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. That, that's the norm. The norm is... I need Jesus every hour. And that's just a song. That's normal life. The norm is I need him. I need you on Wednesday. 
and I need you Thursday getting these people to school, and I need you on this project, and I need you at this nighttime, and I need you next week, and I need you for this, and there's not much of life I can do apart from you. In fact, most of life is a big mess when I don't depend on you. These behaviors, what's doubly damaging here, is not only is a person who is in the story of God, there's been creation, fall, and they've been rescued, but they are, they are communicating a story. We're all communicating a story to others. But I think where this is tacked, the series is coursing to is getting us all pretty comfortable with communicating the story. What's so dangerous about not pursuing rescue constantly is we begin to tell a false story. We begin to tell an untrue story. We begin to tell a story that someone could hear and, and understand but not be saved by. Let me give you some examples. Why is it bad for a Christian to lose their temper? Well, I mean, the Bible says so. Be angry, do not sin. Functionally, practically, when it comes to rescue, it's bad because when a Christian loses their temper, they're saying, I need to exert my power. I've got to have this this way. Because Jesus won't rescue. He won't come through. Why is it bad to perpetually worry? I mean, the Bible says don't do it. The Bible says um, don't fret over what you eat or drink. Your father knows you need these things. See how he takes care of the flowers? Take care of you? The one who perpetually worries says, I have got to work this out. I've got to find a way. Because Jesus won't do it. The one, why is it bad to get drunk? The Bible says drink. Or don't be filled with wine. Be filled, controlled by the Holy Spirit. Functionally, when it comes to rescue, it's bad to get drunk because what we're saying is, I, have, I must have escape. I've got to escape to the bottle because Jesus won't rescue me. Why is it bad to run to the arm of a lover? We're saying, I must have security. I must have acceptance because Jesus won't rescue me. Why is it bad to overindulge? We're saying, I must have comfort and I must have pleasure because Jesus won't rescue me. Or Jesus isn't enough. And we sang this song already today. All of you is more than enough than all I need. And that's true. But if we don't continually come for rescue, change me, change my heart, make what's true, true in me, We'll be preaching a different gospel. The Christian life is about living by faith in Jesus. It's about rescue in all things. Part of your story, inescapably, is rescue. And must accurately be told that Jesus rescues sinners. Terry mentioned that uh, I lead this ministry on campus, and we have students who are leaders in the group, and and they have, you know, they have things they're supposed to do as part of their role. But part of what they do is, is they get discipled. They just meet with me or their staff member each week. And, and part of that is a, we have a consistent part of this discipleship thing. And, and one of those questions we ask them every week is this question, what's, tell me, what is the most exciting thing God's doing in your life this week? Now, the first couple of times, just catch them off guard like, I, I don't know. I wish I didn't know you were going to ask that. And, and I know we're going to ask this. So they start looking for it. And really what we're asking what we're trying to tunnel down to is, tell me how Jesus is rescuing you. 
what we're trying to achieve is we're trying to stamp on them a lifelong habit of I'm looking for where God is rescuing or I, I'm, I'm asking him to rescue in here and here and in this and this and again and again and again. There are moments in life that they're not, not every day, infrequent, but there are some moments in life where God graces you to see so clearly your need for Him. But without any distraction or debris. One of these for me happened uh, three years ago this summer. I think some of you know my mom uh, was sick and, and, fight, and uh, had cancer for a while and Three years ago was the end of her, of her battle. She um, had a, a chemotherapy treatment, and this one really, it just took too much of her. And trying to take cancer, it, it took too much of her weight and too much of her energy, too much of the light in her eyes. And so I flew down to Florida to see my mom, and she's in the ICU, and the last time I saw her, we were on a golf course a couple months before that. And of course, I'm going to go see her, but I remember so clearly telling God in the waiting room, I do not want to do this. I do not want to go in that room. I don't want to see her so weak. I don't want to have to hover around her and not be able to hug her because she's so sensitive to pain. I don't want to see all those tubes and to be there for two hours and ever just be half asleep for most of it. I don't want to breathe that air. I don't want to be in that hallway. I don't want to put these gloves on and this mask and this gown. I don't want to do any of this. I mean, I, was, I did. I had to. But I can't. It became so clear to me how needy I am. How needy. That, that that's reality. That most of the time I live in a quasi-dream state where I think I can get by with most of life. That's an illusion. And so I would pray, God, please do what I can't do. You're going to have to do that. You have to grace me. You have to help me bring joy to her and to my stepdad in an appropriate way these two hours. And so I get to the door and swallow hard and walk in. And he does. And I leave grateful, exhausted. And we get something to eat. And we come back a few hours later, later for the next round of visiting hours. And it's not any better. It's the same. God, I, can, I can't go in there again. I, I, I don't want to go in there. I'm here for a week. I don't want to go in there again. And again, he graces me. And the next day and the rest of the week became so clear how desperately we need Him. I mean, you and I, we share the same fallen condition. We share the same fallen condition with the Israelites. We need rescue all the time. And it brings God great joy to do it. It is no inconvenience or no trouble. It's what brings Him joy. You needing Him and going to Him for need brings him joy. One of the litmus tests for if rescue has its proper place in our lives is the activity of prayer. 
I mean, when something is desperate, when something's in trouble, when you need something really bad, it is no hardship to prayer. To pray, you, you don't need a you don't need a little prayer guide to remind you to pray. You don't need to wake up extra early. You don't need to, you know. It's like breathing. When things are really rough, it is prayer becomes how you survive. And when things aren't so rough, I mean, quite frankly, we don't pray that much. Not because we don't need them any less, we just don't see it. And so how we're going to end today is we're going to sing a prayer. It's a song you guys have sung a lot. Maybe you didn't pick this up yet. Songs are mainly prayers. And part of the course of this song says, you alone can rescue, that you alone can save. And what I encourage you to do is, as we sing this, that you would in your head and your heart be pushing and banishing away the false saviors, the false rescuers. That Jesus, you've got to rescue me from turning to this because you alone rescue. This does not. You alone provide comfort and pleasure and recognition and acceptance. This does not. That does not. That never has. It never will. I, you've got to change me. You have to rescue me from me. So that's what we're going to do. So why don't you stand with me. Let's pray. And then we're going to sing and pray again. Lord God, would you anchor and well up in some here a overflowing hope and relief that they are not on their own to please you. And it was never intended that way, that you want to rescue them right now and an hour from now and tonight and this week and the rest of the month and the year and that that brings you joy. Lord, may we feel your joy right now and we just proclaim and affirm what you say is true, that you alone, Jesus, you alone rescue. Grace us to do that now.